Well, what episode is this, Chris? Four, five. Was I supposed to be keeping track? Um, uh, I would hope it's one of us needs to be keeping track, and it's definitely <laughs> you know one of the things that's furthest from my mind sometimes. But uh, welcome back to the Men Creating Change podcast. Yes. I'm your host, Aaron. With me today, I have Chris, Jenny. Oh, I'm on it. Hello, hi, I'm Jenny. You speak today, huh? Yeah, um, my name is Jenny. I go by she, her, her pronouns. I'm the educational programmer for the Gender Equity Center. And today, our guest is Nico Pitt, a writer, educator, and artist, has a Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing from Mills College. The writing can be found in the anthology Troubling the Line, their book, The Period, Dark Swan, I mean Dirty Swan, and online journals such as Book Portal Reader, Open House, and Eleven Eleven. Their visual art has grown. Has shown. Their visual art has been shown at the Brooklyn Museum, Crowsworth Gallery in Oakland, screened in the Frame Line Film Festival, and toured with the Her Story Inventory Project. They teach at they teach at San Jose State and San Francisco State. They are currently inspired by the miraculously big hearts of their students, their adorable dog, and their bicycle. They also live in San Francisco. Nico. Hi. Welcome. So, usually most of our podcasts start off with um, current events. And so, I have to give a brief update on the situation for um, the Department of African American Studies. Um, last, we talked about it. We were um, discussing potential outcomes. And I would still encourage people to come out and join us. Um... The department may be in jeopardy of losing its space. Hmm. So I'd recommend, you know, just stopping by if you have the chance. Just go and sit in the lounge for like 15, 20 minutes. Bring your friends. We have computers you can use. We have um, whiteboards you can write and draw on if you really want to. Um, we have faculty members that you can stop by and see. They have the office hours, but oftentimes we're all just in the office. Just, you know, hanging out, doing the work that we have to do. And... It's, it's a beautiful space. We can keep the space if we show that students, faculty, and staff utilize the space. So if you want to help us out in our, in our time of need, I recommend stopping by, saying hi, or just showing up to the events that we host. Um, with that being said, I would like to extend a condolence to the family of the, I want to say as a young man who passed away the Saturday of our homecoming game. So there were two shooting incidents. One where somebody was injured, the other one somebody was killed. And um, as homecomings go on between now and the end of November, because this, this is homecoming season, please make sure that you tell your friends to be aware of the surroundings, make sure that people know where they're at at all times, and please leave all your beefs at home these are people out trying to have a good time, just like you are. Please don't bring your problems with you. You're not going to do anything but make those nights traumatic. And sometimes, even in the face of great trauma, people don't know how to go receive help. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to cause a problem, don't be the problem. Or as you know, the great artist once said, don't start none, won't be none. Mm-hmm. Um, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and transition into interviewing our guest. Um, so I'm a firm believer in Audre Lorde's notion of self-identification and self-definition. So, oh, um, so first I would like for you to identify yourself for the audience. And then I want you to define your identifiers for yourself, and then try to give the audience like a simple explanation for what they mean. Mm, thanks, yeah. Um, thanks for bringing in Audre Lorde, too, my heroes, for sure. Um, yeah, I identify, you know, as I'm binary, um, and what that means kind of changes from day to day sometimes, but it's in many ways, it's a political uh, stance, um, but it's also a spiritual stance. So, um, 
you know, growing up, I didn't really fit into gender. Like, I was always having to have gender explained to me. And um, so it just didn't click like it did for other people. And, um, you know, like most of us, when we don't fit in, we think there's something wrong with us. It took me a long time and really... In, when I was in grad school at Mills and people that I was in classes with identified as non-binary or genderqueer and um, trans and stuff like that, that I started to really see that as a possibility of like, oh, this might actually be what's happening with me. So the way I see non-binary gender identities is, is a lot of different kinds of non-binary gender identities. I don't want to speak for other people, um, but the way that I view it is that it's a uh, gender identity that is outside of the binary and that is a um, part of decolonizing gender. So like the gender binary is a colonialist construct. And so it feels very important to like name that, but also to not claim a non-binary gender identity that's, you know, not from like my European ancestry right. at the same time. Um, so I do like have, you know, white European ancestry and, um, you know, identify as white um and um and yeah my class background is pretty mixed um low income now but um you know grew up uh, uh low income and also uh middle class later on my parents were up, upwardly mobile and so i had that like weird thing where my parents were fairly privileged but they didn't really share that um the monetary privilege with their kids so um so i put myself through school and stuff like that um and so it's it's an interesting positionality i think that um and i also identify as queer so um so i think that 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 part of the identity is like really a big umbrella you know um, especially being in gender transition like sexual preference shifts a lot for people and so not feeling like I have to identify as um, as gay or lesbian, right? That like, um, or even bisexual, like sort of makes it seem like there's only two genders to be attracted to. So sometimes I use pansexual, but then that sort of feels like a weird word for me. So <laughs> just queer. And then if you know me well enough, we can talk details kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so you've had your writing published numerous times but when you started was it easy for you to find your voice or how'd you come how'd you come into that that was a lot there was a lot of struggle there for sure I think um yeah when I first started writing I was a teenager and I think a lot of my writing at the time was to please other people like I really didn't know who I was and um even through my 20s you know the writing that i did for myself was too queer or too problematic so i had a book i wrote a book called bug in my 20s that was kind of a satire um uh and um a friend said he would publish it and then at the last minute um decided not to publish it because it was too um controversial and um, and that sent me into like a, a writer's block for years. I um, sp spiraled out and sort of left writing. It was, a, it was a real betrayal, and it was a it was a homophobic betrayal because the book was very queer. Um, so I kind of climbed back into the ring in my thirties, and and now I think like. A lot of things, a lot of personal work that I did and things like that really helped me to figure out that I was okay. And I think I had developed enough self-love and self-respect to kind of get get more committed to figuring out whatever it means to be an artist. Um, and so when I ended up at Mills, which was really, you know, grad school is really hard and can be very challenging. Like, I was writing... Um, a lot of stuff that I didn't expect anyone to like and through that process one of my mentors there encouraged me to just try once a week just submit stuff so I made this thing called try Tuesdays 
where every Tuesday I tried. So every Tuesday I submitted some work and, um, and you forget about it. You, know, you just have a spreadsheet and you just submit some work and you forget about it. You go and do the rest of your thing and stuff started getting published at that time. So at that point it felt like what was being published really was more authentically my voice and it's experimental stuff. And now I don't write as much poetry anymore. I'm writing more essays or kind of experimental essays and, you know, manifesto type things or whatever. I think because I'm just angry a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand that, you know, especially living in the world we live in. It's hard not to be angry. Yeah. But, um, so Lord was, as one of my uh, mentors mentioned, she was the first writer that ever taught her that you can write things out of anger and produce beauty. Yeah. Is that what you strive for? Or is uh, your anger like a different vehicle for you? No, I think that's that's really well put. And um, I think like Lord's essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, is like one of the best um, sort of um, explanations or something for why I write. Like there is that sort of transformational quality, but she also talks about like, I think the, the sentence is like the quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives like that. So that, so the, that self scrutiny I think is really important. So not being, not sort of doing the, um, the dualistic move of I'm angry at, but just like being in the anger and that sort of is a liberatory thing. So sort of not like non-dual anger or like enlightened anger is liberatory where I'm not like going to go and hurt someone with my anger, but I'm going to use this energy and like thinking about anger really as like a transgression of boundaries, like a healthy response to my boundaries having been crossed. Um, and thinking about anger as communal, right? And so, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know why I'm rambling now. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of ways in which I can jump into it. And all I can think is like, you know, as a, uh, as a, a literature major from undergrad, you know, we spend a lot of time with um, texts, you know, be it poetry, fiction, prose, nonfiction, you know, um, and when I was a student, you know, I was just taking things on face value, you know, and people would have to point and say like, oh, find the deeper meaning. And I'd be like, okay, cool, deeper meaning. Um, and it wasn't until I got much older when I realized that even in the process of trying to find deeper meaning of works and even questioning stuff like authorial intent um, and whether there's value in presuming, you know, um, like subtext. Um, it was also coming from a very colonial perspective and that, you know, when I was really doing like literary theory work, a lot of our theorists that were studying at the time, even though I went to what I would consider a very subversive school, which is UC Santa Cruz, it was still very colonial mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, you're reading like theorists like Harold Bloom or whoever, mm-hmm. that's just like old white male, mm-hmm. you know, very privileged perspectives and, that you know the process of decolonizing art is um hard you Hmm. know and you know when you say the gender binary is a colonial construction like that it reminds me of that right Mm -hmm. and that decolonizing gender is also hard right um Hmm. and oftentimes the colonial perspective of gender uh, comes from putting things in opposition to each other mm. and saying, you know what's male by what's not female, right? You know what's female by what's not male, mm-hmm. right? Similarly, you know, colonial liter- literary scholarship, particularly around, you know, we studied like Edward Said and Orientalism and stuff. A lot of that was, mm-hmm. you know, what's Oriental by what's not right like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like if it doesn't count as occidental then it counts as oriental Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. kind of the the start of you know orientalism and so you know this Mm -hmm. this idea that you know we have to in order to decolonize we have to make meaning for something out of our own experiences rather than 
casting it in opposition of things that we don't experience, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess, you know, I wanted to kind of ask about, like, you know, being genderqueer, being gender non-binary, like, what is the experience of being able to, like, build a definition for yourself of gender that's not in opposition to something? Gosh, you know, that's a great question. Um, in a way, like, the first thing that popped in my head when you asked that was it feels really empowering, right? Um, but at the same time, like, there's a, a feeling of sort of being in a wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what am I doing? Am I crazy for feeling this way mm-hmm. um and okay so i'm crazy let's destigmatize crazy <laughs> um but being like a i think in community with other people who identify as non-binary is very like that's a new thing the past couple of years i've really connected with people who identify as non-binary and just sort of having that mirror i think and doing what like in gender theory we talk about as implotment Mm -hmm. so there's that like oh i see my friend doing that and i'm doing that and Mm -hmm. so that must be a non-binary thing to do or something Mm -hmm. and we kind of laugh about it but it also seems really true um and it's just interesting like i'm in this choir that is like mostly non-binary people it's a trans um, gender queer intersex choir and um, it's called new voices and there's 50 people in the choir and there's 50 different genders happening mm. I kid you not so even though so in a way it's more like permission to just be free right um, but to medicalize that expression is really interesting so like I'm on T and so I'm like mm-hmm. medicalizing or somehow trans Progressing, you know, it's like I had to, I had to like have someone write a letter saying that I'm crazy so that I can right. get this thing that I really want. And it's, it was a huge, that was a whole years long thing of like, do I feel comfortable? And like, how does that feel to have that? And the person who wrote the letter, I hope the insurance companies aren't listening to this. The person who wrote the letter, you know, he was, who also identifies as genderqueer, he's like, I'm sorry that I have to be this gatekeeper for this thing. And like me really wanting to arrive at gender transitioning from a place of desire instead of a place of like shame. Like it's not that I hate my body or how I manifest in the world. It's that I'm excited and I desire to manifest differently. So that I think is where like I'm trying, I think a lot in queer theory, um, we talk about shame and grief and, all these negative things and and a lot of times like we're missing the positive or like the the pleasure right and so something i'm really interested in is and i'm seeing this in other activists work is like how can we come to gender transition from a place of like not i'm sick and i'm gonna make myself feel better but like i'm fine and i'm gonna like rock my gender in a way that i've always wanted to Uh i don't know if that's you know Frameable, right? right? Because the model is is that there's something there has to be something wrong with you to change. Well, and also, you know, um, not like I identify cis. I don't want to try to speak towards any trans experiences, but you know, talking to friends who who are trans and also reading works by people who are trans, um, there's also that element of people putting gender expectations on you, right, from society, and particularly when you talk about women who then, or sorry, trans folks with female bodies who transition to male bodies, um, who uh, say stuff like, when I was considered a radical feminist, I could say X, Y, Z. And then when I became what passes as cis male, I no longer could say X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. And this idea that even though you as a substantive person hasn't changed, because your context has changed and the expectations of society has changed, then suddenly your behavior also has to change. Absolutely. And it's interesting we were talking about this earlier, like that gender is is a uh, communal thing, right? That that it's an administrative thing, that it's it's co-created. And so it doesn't matter 
right? Like my, it's, that's, that's the whole distinction between like intention and like impact, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I might as a radical feminist say this thing and then, yeah, well, you're, you're in a different body and bodies matter. And I think especially politically, right? So, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. We're, you know, one of the things that has slowed me down in my transition is like, oh, do I really want to become a white man? No, right. <laughs> like right. I really don't. And, and that's a really important political move. So it's like, as I transition, it's really important for me to remain in between. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that like finding community of folks who occupy the liminal gender space and recognizing that like, I don't want to pass and I don't want to live stealth is really a key part of my gender transition and and yet like that slippery slope or that like the way that privilege can can leak in or the seepage of that or right. like how that happens and so just like really wanting to be held accountable you mm. know as that move happens so that I don't take on that privilege right, right. yeah yeah it's a big piece I think um, the interesting part of this conversation thus far is we're talking about the tangibility of how physically things manifest and then we assign some sort of value to them, whether that be based on a binary or a previous experience and things of that nature. But the question that I have for you is well let me preface this by saying that um this this is one of my aaronisms so everybody who knows me knows that i ask these weird ass questions and they get really convoluted as they go on but so we know that language can be gendered we know that writing is a process by which we set each other free so when you write do you create a non-binary language to speak from? Or do you write from a place where you allow your writing to take on whatever shape or form it needs to take on? Thank you for that question. I feel like I've, I've needed that question for a while. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's interesting, like, I think I do um, write from a non-binary place and that happened maybe eight years ago when we really started to come out and thinking about in particular um, like my book for example which is like a trans anti-gentrification Iliad San Francisco poem that the character um, the main character who's called Pira um, is a trans character and that when I started writing that book I didn't realize my gender mm -hmm. and I, I remember talking to one of my mentors about it being like who am I to write this like I'm not trans my mentor was just kind of silent. <laughs> like, they'll figure it out. Right. So it was kind of an interesting thing of, like, I kind of found myself through my writing, and I think a lot of artists will do that. Like, you'll right. you'll paint a painting or you'll make a film and go, oh, that's me mirroring me. So it's so much of it is unconscious. And I was terrified of being trans. Like, it was one of my worst fears ever. Mm -hmm. And so coming through that and going, like, no, actually – this is one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. And I'm really grateful for it. But only through, I think, writing was I able to get to that place. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah. So you've been transitioning all your life, which means that your writing at some point began a process of its own. So does that mean that your definition for your, your writing, how you define, you know, your poetry or your essays or your short stories or your prose, does that mean that that definition has evolved with time as you have? Or do you think that you still try to write with a similar purpose? Gosh, another good question. Um, I think now 
I'm clearer about my purpose than before. I think it was really, I think, yeah, especially the past few years. Um, I think before I was really writing just for myself and, um, and, you know, making art just for myself because it brought me joy, which is fine. But now I'm kind of in a bit of a, a creative block and I'm writing a lot of sort of, as I said earlier, like angry little essays and manifesto things. And I'm working on, um, I'm trying to write a book about love and I'm trying to write a book about um, my transition for people that I love. So like answering the questions that I don't really want to answer because I feel like that I need to stop avoiding those questions and maybe those questions aren't hanging in the air with my parents but if I'm imagining them then they're hanging in the air for me and so I want to try to write and answer those questions and I think that that purpose is gosh to really make some things clear like I've I've been writing about an essay about gender in um, spiritual communities Mm -hmm. because a friend asked me you know hey you know, I want to have like a women's retreat. And I said, well, why, why not include non-binary people in that? Why not include, you know, how is your languaging inclusive? And so we had this whole conversation and started writing about it and I realized there's a whole thing around um, gender essentialism and spiritual, mm-hmm. you know, retreats and stuff, which, yeah, duh. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, that these people really want to be inclusive, but they're they're like, well, I don't know how to write the language, and so I'll do that. Yeah. So I'm gonna try to. So I'm working on that right now. So I think maybe the purpose is really more policy or something, and less art, like art for art's sake. I'm not really interested in art for its sake anymore. Mm. Yeah, that I I I definitely feel that. I think that's very resonant with me because when. My understanding of religion and spirituality was never really about a calling. I never really, I wasn't raised with religion in my household. Uh, my parents were very deliberate about keeping organized religion its own thing and not part of, you know, the books I read when I was a kid and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, so I don't have this like deep hearted like in your soul raised whatever right mm-hmm. um, that you'll you'll talk to some people about sometimes when they'll say stuff like I was raised Catholic so I can never ignore that part of me or stuff like that right mm-hmm. I, I didn't have that but, but um, instead you know a lot of my understanding of spirituality and religion particularly organized religion and particularly Judeo-Christian uh, religions comes from you know college post-college professional experiences um, and my understanding in those spaces is that a lot of what's written and a lot of the words and the policies does shape the conception afterwards. That because something has been written a certain way, it's almost like a power of word thing, right? Yeah. And I think like if I were to also go into my literary roots, I would say Hamlet also had this thing, right, where Hamlet's not crazy until he says I'm crazy. And then at that moment he becomes crazy, right? So similarly... In the, in the Christian church, something's not true until somebody has said that it's true, and then now the entirety of the religion believes that, right? Mm. Um, and in a way, the rules dictate the conformity, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea that you would have to spend considerable time and effort and emotional labor to arrive at exactly what the language needs to look like is, is powerful, you know? And I know that I've had friends... Particularly, you know, my friends um, who I made from the Methodist Church, who, um, because they're trying to be individually more inclusive of gender in their roles as whether chaplains or whatnot, um, have tried to de-gender the language, right? And instead of saying, for example, instead of saying father, they say creator, right? Mm -hmm. And so God is creator and not a father figure. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, stuff like that, and, and mm-hmm. it's it's like kind of powerful to see that work, mm-hmm. you know, and the idea that that can influence an entire church worth of people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so let's spin this. 
<laughs> I had a laugh because you said uh, Christians, and my first thought was that club who tried to catch you everywhere on campus. Oh, you, yeah, you'd yeah. be walking to the library, yeah, or to the parking structure. Yeah, it does not matter. Yeah, it's my nowhere. But hey, <laughs> you're like, oh god, here we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Would you like to? No. I told you no yesterday, told you no before. <laughs> That's not going to change. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I'll get you. I'll get you. I'll find you tomorrow then. <laughs> what? No. No, don't. <laughs> this is not Christmas. I don't want your gift. <laughs> Could give it to somebody else. Maybe they want it. Well, so uh, transitioning, you also teach. Mm. So can you tell mm. us about the uh, space you try to curate in your classrooms? Oh, yeah. You know, um, I think, like, for me... Um, as a student, the classroom was always really fraught. Like, I had so much anxiety, um, and I couldn't feel comfortable that it, the more I teach, the more I feel like that's one of the most important things. Not necessarily comfort, of course, but, but safety. And, um, and yeah, no, it's interesting, like, thinking about how to do that with a group of people, you know, and really getting folks to connect with each other has a lot to do with vulnerability. And something one of my um, mentors taught me years ago was like, if you want your students to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable. So... It seems really obvious, but yeah, I think it's important to, and it's a fine line, right, between like appropriate disclosure and not, but I think it's important to be authentic and vulnerable. And, um, and so, yeah, I try to show up as myself and invite or give permission to folks to show up as themselves as much as they feel comfortable. Um, and I think that... The readings, the language is really important. So, you know, at the beginning of the semester, we read um, uh, essays and things um, that try to set the tone, you know. So, like Bell Hooks, Theories Liberatory Practice, where she talks about growing up, you know, and seeing her parents fighting and, and realizing that, you know, that that's not right, and later kind of going like, oh, that was patriarchy, right? So... Um, so saying like, yeah, you, you, even as a child were a theorist, right? She says the child is the best theorist. So sort of giving folks permission to participate as scholars, like you're okay. You don't have to prove anything to be in the room. You're good enough. You belong. I think even just saying that is really important and, you know, um, trying to get people to not be competitive, I think, because that, that alienates a lot of folks don't want to compete with each other. And, and the assumption sometimes in the classroom is it's a competitive space. Mm. So we're trying to say at the beginning of, of the semester, you know, everybody in here could get an A+. Plus. You know, you're not competing with each other, mm-hmm. you know. And I think grading is one of the hardest parts of teaching. So, um not only am I the world's slowest grader, mm-hmm. but I try to decenter that and I try to put care and connection and um, like group um, learning, you know, um, uh, peer led discussions and just think, you know, other things that, that um, I've learned from other, you know, colleagues on campus that, that help to support. Um, is like that balance between okay I want you to read this thing mm-hmm. I know your life is so full you don't have time you got three jobs and you're taking care of family and you're you know commuting four hours a day or whatever but I really want you to read this right it's going to change your brain it's going to change your life so if if you're somebody who's never had an essay change your life you're, you're probably not going to read it so it's like how do you get that that initial sort of taste of of that oh wow like my eyes are open right and so this is a great time of the semester when when you know students start to tell me you know this this class has really opened my eyes and that's the gratification and and they're doing it together you know so 
I don't know if that really answered your question, but... It did. Okay. You also mentioned uh, vulnerability earlier. Yeah. Do you have a working definition for that? Ooh. Um, I should. I think... Um, the, like, what comes to mind is is authentic openness. Right? So... Um, it it's not going to feel comfortable, right? That vulnerability is a little bit uncomfortable and it's it's also exciting, right? Like when I'm vulnerable, I also feel like, wow, I can connect more deeply with people. So um, that's sort of the, the prize, right? Everything has a price and everything is a prize, right? So vulnerability is like, well, you could get hurt really bad right now because <laughs> you're vulnerable. But the prize is connection, and it's worth it. Well, and and Aaron's about to go into the working definition of vulnerability on this podcast. But what (laughs) I wanted to add to what what, uh, you mentioned was one of the things that we don't 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 always... <laughs> One of the things that that uh, uh, we we don't always acknowledge, particularly in a higher education space, is that we use authenticity, the phrase authenticity, like a buzzword, mm. but we don't always acknowledge the fact that authenticity is often rooted in trauma. Mm. And when we ask people to be authentic with their students, with their staff, with their colleagues, what we're really asking them to do is opening up their wounds and rooting mm. through their trauma. Mm -hmm. Right, like Mm -hmm. these are the times I've been hurt, or these are times I've hurt others, and here's what I did about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, when we don't talk about the trauma that's associated with authenticity, that's when this like lasting hurt Mm -hmm. happens, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so needing to recognize that when we say authentic, we also code trauma into that for sure. And I think, like, I just, yeah, I'm grateful for the personal work that I've done around my trauma for Mm -hmm. sure, because I think. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't be able to to be vulnerable. So that's a really important point, mm-hmm. for sure. And that hopefully, as you know, just having you know healed right. a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So the working definition that we <laughs> <laughs> that we have for our podcast is uh, vulnerability is risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. I love that. Um, it comes from Dr. Brene Brown. Oh, yeah. Um, she does research on shame and um, courage. And she's arrived at the conclusion that to be vulnerable is to sit at the nexus of all your emotions. So I mentioned that because I wanted to, and I keep staring at this poster on the wall for your um, event that you've been putting together. Now, I want to ask you a question about masculinities and mm-hmm. power and popular media. Mm-hmm. What what draws you specifically to studying the masculine aspects of society and how do you work with power? Because we know that power has the ability to corrupt people. So how do you work with power and give it the value to help change things without feeling like it's going to throw you into like something that might cause you to lose a piece of yourself in the process great question um yeah when you started to ask that question i was thinking like oh i'm drawn to masculinities because that is one of the sources of my trauma Mm -hmm. right and also like not having been seen as masculine or being read as masculine right um for obvious reasons, then sort of being an invisible masculine person in some ways is um, is an interesting position, and um, and so just being fascinated with like how how masculinity is visible and what what do we even mean by masculine? Right, we start to to look at masculinities or femininities, it sort of crumble at the core, right? There's no, there's nothing uh, in the center. So, so that's really interesting. And the, it's the, you know, it's, and bringing that to the point of power, what do we mean by power? Right. And like um, the connection of power to the collective. Right. So I think 
the myth of masculinities, and I don't know if this is true, I'm just going to say it, but <laughs> feels to me like the myth of masculinities is that power is an individual's. And it's my belief that all power is collective, mm-hmm. right? And so, I don't know, maybe I got that from somewhere. I'm sure I read that somewhere. But that that masculinity somehow are like the, you know, the Wizard of Oz. So they create this sort of smoke and mirrors that make us think that one person has power, right? And that's patriarchy. And so really want to take that apart mm-hmm. you know i really am interested in dismantling that and finding out what is true human communal relations and how we're individuals underneath these constructs you know yeah like yeah. who would we be well i'm definitely like you know, also going along the lines of that, this is where we get to the point of saying that, you know, all oppressions are linked, right? And because just as much as it is like the paper tiger of masculinity, it also, there's an element of it that comes from colonialism, right? There's an element that comes from like this kind of cowboy mythology of like a John Wayne in the wilderness and how you single-handedly can tame the wild or tame you know, the world, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that there's a great man kind of a sense of masculinity, yeah. um, which is in there also with this, like, individualism, right? This exceptionalism, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, totally. Yeah. I know that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw has a website where she has an article listed on it um, about black male exceptionalism. And it's the the concept that society will invest in trying to save a collective of people if they feel like that collective of people is necessary to produce change. But she created her website first and foremost after um, she coined the term intersectionality in 1987 because she realized that although this term was initially used for uh, black women in the workplace, that if it was to be adopted by everybody else to be a catch-all, then black women would wind up back in the spaces that required her to create the term to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Which we've seen. We have seen that. we absolutely seen that. And you said how, you know, all oppressions are linked. And the first thing I always think about is uh, Audre's notion that there is no hierarchical oppressions. Mm. But then I always couple that with your silence will not save you. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we're all equally oppressed. Mm. But if you're being quiet about being oppressed, then... Right. Nothing is going to come about in that order. Hmm. So, in conducting your research and looking at power and masculinity, is there a a means you've arrived at to create a, a foundation for equity to be used to help bridge the gaps created by the by the notion that that by the notion that there is a hierarchical oppression. So let me just see if I understand this question. It's a great question, but I just want to make sure I get it. So asking like if through the the research that I've done, um, thinking about this, have I found a, like a way of, of finding equity within um, genders in relationship to masculinity? Is that what you're yes. asking? Okay. Gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had. I think that, like, that's, I, I'm hopeful, right, that, that there's a way uh, through the mess um, because I, cho- I choose to be hopeful because I feel better when I'm hopeful. Um, I like how it feels in the morning to grow up, to wake up and to have hope. Um, but that's like, a, you know, it's like Pascal's um, wager. That's, that's, there's no evidence that, that, uh, that there is going to be um, a way to fix this mess. Um, but that being said, like, I think that for sure there seems to be movement, right, around um, really... Um, awareness 
and um, and knowledge, right? So that like people see, people seem to be um, holding more uh, awareness around gender and gaining knowledge in a way that seems new. So what we do uh, with that remains to be seen, you know? Um, I mean, it's interesting, um, you know, Ryan is coming next week and he's going to be talking and, and he's, um, seeing, you know, new kinds of masculinities in Pixar mm-hmm. and that's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there, there's ways that there is a shift happening and there is movement happening and there is reason for hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't have an answer. <laughs> yeah. That's perfectly fine. Um, <laughs> You say hope. Is there a way for you to define hope? And I say that because, um, at least in conversations that I have with people, hope is a dangerous thing for some people. For sure. You know, for some people, they feel like they have hope, then they're so open to the idea that things can go wrong or things can go, you know, insanely right. But do you have a definition for hope that allows for, you know, all the possibilities to coexist? Yeah, I mean, I'm like thinking about Emily Dickinson's like hope is a thing with with wings or a thing with feathers or something like. But I'm thinking also about like pragmatic hope, right? That that um, there there's a ta- like the 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 pitfall with hope is there's attachment to outcome. So if I can detach from outcome and just be in the energy of hope, which is a lighter feeling in my heart um like i see fear as like the opposite of hope Mm. or worry is the opposite of hope or anxiety i don't like how those feel in my body so if i can you know generate hope um but not i hope that this happens Mm -hmm. because then that's very close to worry it's just a similar thing for sure and and also like the radical acceptance of disappointment that like as one of my teachers says don't worry it's not going to work out (laughs) (laughs) so like having that sort of the cosmic joke of it's an absurd thing and what are we even really doing here and kind of keeping that really um uh like uh, far perspective you know in the, the little blue planet I think um, from from me listening to what you're saying, um, definitely like kind of the inroads through Pixar, through pop culture uh, represents that hope for me, right? Because um, when I see Frozen, right, as a movie, and I point out to somebody like, hey, isn't this a positive representation of healthy masculinity, right? Uh, because Kristoff is, right? If you... Let me get specific. I love Kristoff. Um, but, um, um, you know, one of the reasons why Kristoff exists, even as a construct, is because somebody decided to try to write that, right? And it's apropos of nothing. There's no consequences. There's no outcomes, right? Like, there's no threat that that's trying to address, Right. Um, and we can connect it to these larger issues of patriarchy, socialization. We can connect it to these larger issues of representation of media. But at its heart, it's really just a person saying, hey, you know, I wanted to create something that was real to me, right? And to me, that's, you know, that's uh, being able to, like, separate the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to say that there's i'm not doing this for gain i'm doing this because i just wanted something that resonated closer to what i experienced mm-hmm. right and this idea that um pop culture does move in that direction right that that when stanley was writing about the x-men in the 60s and 70s he wasn't necessarily thinking hey i want you know queer folks to feel accepted right mm-hmm. and yet he wrote this incredible queer narrative that's mm-hmm. been adopted by queer communities mm-hmm. because it was representational of the struggle at the time mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and you know there was no kind of social change outcome that was attached to that it was 
let me write a story that I think is resonant to experiences I've had, mm. right? And so, you know, I think pop culture does an incredible job of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's like the modern day parable or something. Yeah. 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 I don't know why I'm thinking about Stone Soup. Do you know that story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you know, everyone um, is hungry. And so somebody says, oh, well, let's make soup. I have water and I have this stone. You bring something. Like, how are we going to make soup out of a rock, right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody has a carrot, and somebody else has one potato, and somebody else has, you know, an onion, and everybody gets together, and they put it all in the pot, and then, of course, it's it's the soup. So it's like that, maybe, is, is hope right, right there. It's like, well, if we each contribute our carrot right. or onion or whatever... Or our stone, even. Right. Like, like it, something will shift. Yeah. I actually really like that. That was, that was rather beautiful. I don't know how people are eating stones, but you know what? <laughs> I, I'm going to put too much thought into this. Um, before we transition again, did you have anything that you would like to contribute? Um, no, I think it was a great opportunity, really, to just kind of listen. Um, this is the first time that the Gender Equity Center... Um, has a faculty fellow and it's a really good opportunity for us to extend the learning experience and bridging um, faculty and you know academic affairs with student affairs and like what we're doing now um, what you're doing here um, with this podcast and like interviewing and talking to really awesome uh, folks that are doing this work it's just great great opportunity so I really value this a lot um, and appreciate so much what Nico is bringing to our space um, you know so yeah she's great and, and yeah I, I, I just wanted to I mean I was quiet most of the time because it was honestly it was a great listening um, opportunity <laughs> as well so I hope the audience that tunes in really enjoys this because I know I did because I was like mm, yeah oh yeah that's a great point that's a great point <laughs> loved it and y'all are rocking this podcast really thanks um, thanks thank you it's so such a smooth like you're ask, Aaron's asking such great questions and I'm like dang where'd that come from <laughs> complex um, it's great yeah mm-hmm. doing good work so as we begin to transition out um, I would be remiss and everybody who knows me would be upset if I didn't do this. So what is the role of minorities in your work, specifically minorities of color, mm-hmm. like black women or Latinx women or Asian American women? What role do you allow their experiences and their stories to play in your classroom or in your writing and things of that nature? Yeah, great question. Um, I really, you know, see, uh, see them as teachers. So... Um, you know, I've learned a lot from Audre Lorde, as we mentioned, Bell Hooks, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and, um, you know, Sherry Moraga. Um, I think like, <clears throat> that's always a tricky question as a right, as a white writer to like, how do I give what, like, like, I don't feel like I... I should be giving voice to um, stories of um, folks in color because I, I can't do that as a white person. But what I can do is provide a platform and provide space for, um, you know, marginalized voices to enter in and, the, and de-center whiteness, you know. And I think that um, I'm still learning, you know. So I think that that's important and just trying to, like, cultivate um that position of like I'm learning and and um trying to you know check my white privilege and and look at that for sure um I think there's a lot of work that we could be doing that we're not doing as like we being like white you know non-binary people specifically um but um like I'm thinking about my gender class and um right now they're reading Janet Mock 
and um, you know trans women of color and redefining realness and that's an amazing story and the way that I try to teach that is yeah let's all learn from her together so um, they think that that's really the way that I view it um, but yeah I mean there's there's places where um, where I definitely need to grow as a writer and as, and as a teacher on that. So just kind of holding that piece around, you know, um, there's um, privilege and power that needs to be, you know, balanced out. Okay, James Baldwin once wrote that to be conscious is to be constantly angry. Yeah. Do you have anything to either add to that statement or do you have advice for those who are beginning their own journeys into becoming more conscious of the realities that are around them? Yeah, I mean, I love James Baldwin's work a lot. And I think like, um, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which is um, like one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. Like. It, speaking of religion and and like the oppression of religion <clears throat> really captures a certain kind of coming of age that can activate one's anger um, but I think that like I don't know if I want to add anything to his statement so much as just say that returning to anger as as a as a kind of manifestation of one's power and like thinking about how um like some folks are not allowed to be angry like that their anger is is too scary or not welcome and like i feel like that is a way of of disempowering people and so to just welcome that anger and to find ways to give folks permission to be angry and to express that anger is key and um, definitely like that anger is sacred you know and um, there are some spiritual traditions I was just talking about this with somebody that sort of shame people around their anger like oh you know if you were enlightened you wouldn't be angry and it's like no like you need to be paying attention and be angry um, like there's so much injustice in the world and one of the fuels for the fire to to fight these problems is our anger it's just like how do we express it and I think one of the things I see um, with our students is that you know it's it's expressed inwardly right because it's not seen as safe to to be angry outwardly so you know and this is you know the the sort of the um this might be controversial to say but i'm gonna say it um the the white shooter the white mass shooter it's like well a white man feels safe enough to express his anger outwardly right and that like that sort of not to say that um that that uh you know that everyone should become a mass shooter because that's not what i'm saying but what i am saying is that there needs to be a way of acknowledging that a lot of the anger that's happening is expressed inwardly, you know? And um, I wasn't really going to bring this up, but it's on my mind. Um, like a year ago, um, we lost a student, um, a San Jose State alumni. And, um, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if I have permission to or whatever, but um, it, you know, he committed suicide and this is somebody who I loved. I loved him. He brought so much light and joy into the room, you know, everywhere he went. And I can only say that he didn't feel like he, he didn't feel safe enough to express his anger about whatever was happening in his life. And so I think that that's really important. And thinking about like the message of this podcast is men creating change is like part of that is making a safe place for men to express their anger and feel held in that and feel witnessed in that and feel 
justified in mm-hmm. that and not feel gaslit, you know. Well, and, and the other part of the masculinities, healthy masculinities conversation is um, not that there isn't always, not that not that there there's never a place for it, but to at least separate the concepts of anger and violence so that one doesn't lead directly to the other. Yeah. Um, because I think that's endemic in, in toxic masculine constructions is that you have to respond through violence and there are other ways to respond to anger. Yeah. All right. So it's just on that person. Let's go back to this uh, white mad shooter thing so we can clarify for folks <laughs> that you are not condoning radical acts of violence. Correct? No, not at all. Not at and all. essentially what you're saying is these radical acts of violence only occur because these people do not have safe spaces to vocalize and be held accountable for the anger that they feel. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to be angry and then nobody's there to help them understand whether that's anger towards themselves or anger towards something. And it's not to say that emotions aren't valid. Mm -hmm. All the emotions are valid. Mm -hmm. It's our responses to the emotions that require work. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what you're hitting at with your statement. Totally. Thank you for clarifying that. No worries. But our first episode, I accidentally knocked over a crush, the wooden snail. And I was like, oh shit, here comes Peter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so um as you begin to wind down nico i'm sure besides the uh gender equity center masculinity power and popular media on wednesday november 13th 3 to 4 p.m in student union room b you have other things going on in your life tell people what you got going on oh um we are starting a book club um that we're gonna read pleasure activism by adrian marie brown and um so we're gonna be talking about sex activism so folks are welcome to pick up a copy of that book and read it over winter break and then in the spring semester we're gonna have four like book club meetings um talking about different themes from the book so yeah yeah what else? What else? Um, there's a podcast you recorded today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, plug your podcast, please. So um, Eileen Johnson recorded a podcast on um, gender and relationships. So that should there's a listening party for that on um, Tuesday, uh, November 12th. Uh, from 12 to 1 p.m. And that's going to be here in the Gender Equity Center. If you want to listen to a podcast and you're not here at the Gender Equity Center, you can find it at SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash SJSU hyphen G-E-N-E-C. G-E-N-E-C. Does Gender Equity have any events coming up or anything like that? Those are our Gender Equity uh, Center events. It's the podcast, um, the Masculinity in Powers, Power in Popular Media, and... Um, we have one more, actually. Um, it's a lunch and learn called Breaking the Cycle, Mass Incarceration of Men. Um, so we're having panelists featuring SJSU professors um, who will be talking about mass incarceration, particularly men um, and men of color. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I oh, know. I guess I should put the, di- the date and time location. Um, <laughs> it's on Tuesday, November 19th. Um, during lunchtime, 12 to 1.30 p.m. in the Student Union, room 1B. Lunch will be provided, and all are welcome. <laughs> Tuesday, November 12th, the Men Creating Change will be hosting a movie night in Mosaic. We'll be watching Moonlight from 6 to 8. November 14th, Thursday, from 6.30 to 8, um, I see you at Capstone, the Department of African American Studies presents Black Love, a community conversation will be in the library, um, MLK Library 225. Um, you're free to come out. We'll have light refreshments. We'll have a wonderful conversation. Um, once again, if you want to contribute or help out in any way, please stop by the African American Studies Department. Come say hi. Come show your face. Let them know that we actually utilize and love that space. That was an unintentional rhyme. Don't Dr. Seuss me. Um, <laughs> with that being said, Thank you so much, Nico. Thank it's been you, wonderful Aaron. having you. Me too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been wonderful having you. <laughs> thank you so much, Chris, for thank everything you, that you do. And thank you to all of you. Um, I don't have an assignment for you guys today. Uh, it's been too much going on for me to actually put 
full thought into creating one. So, um, I guess I'll task you with this. Oh. Ooh, I just thought of one. Yes, perfect. Okay, okay so um, find uh, a book that uh, you want to destroy. <laughs> Rip a page out of it. So this is a healthy expression mm-hmm. of anger. Rip a page out of it and scratch out uh, all the words that you don't want to be on that page and circle any words that you do and make a poem, make something beautiful out mm-hmm. of the anger that you have against that text. It's yeah. like poetry, isn't Black it? Poetry. Yeah. I like that. Perfect. So that would be this episode's assignment. Oh, one last question. So for beginners to consciousness, what book would you recommend? Like if somebody said to you, I want to jump in. I have nowhere. I have no idea where to start. What book would you would you like? Say Sister hey. Outsider. Audrey Lord. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. That being said, you can either you know go to your local library or a bookstore. They'll probably have it. Um, that being said, my name is Aaron Booker. Chris Yang. Jenny. Nico. And thank you all for listening.